Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news and Hoosier law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Tyler Fenwick, Indiana Lawyer, Senior Reporter, and your host. As always, thanks for joining us. For our extended interview this week, I spoke with Derek Mason and Andrew Collin from the Indiana Public Defender Commission. We talked about how Indiana's lawyer shortage has impacted the public interest field and some of the things the commission does to help combat that. But before we get to that, I'm here in our studio with managing editor Daniel Carson and reporter Alexa Schrake to talk about this week's top legal news. Today is Wednesday, August 9th, and these are your headlines. We're continuing to follow abortion litigation in Indiana, and for that, Alexa has an update on the after effects of the Supreme Court's ruling in June. The day before Indiana's near-total abortion ban was set to go into effect, the American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana filed a petition for rehearing in its case with the Indiana Supreme Court. The ACLU's petition urges the high court to temporarily place the injunction back on the ban, at least while the plaintiffs continue seeking injunction relief in the trial court. The high court had vacated the injunction in a June 30th opinion. The case was remanded back to the Monroe Circuit Court, where the plaintiffs say they will file a renewed preliminary injunction motion. The Office of the Attorney General responded to the petition, calling it improper and extreme. The ban, known as Senate Enrolled Act 1, prohibits abortions in Indiana except in limited cases of rape or incest, fatal fetal anomaly, or to protect the life or the health of the mother. It had been enjoined since September 2022 when the justices ruled 4-1 in June to lift the injunction. The law would have gone into effect August 1st, but the filing of the petition for rehearing means the court's June ruling can't be certified until the question of rehearing is resolved. As of now, abortion is legal in Indiana up to 20 weeks post-fertilization. Thanks, Alexa. School is back in some parts of the state, and a federal judge has weighed in on a new Indiana law that prohibits instruction on human sexuality in grades K through 3. What can you tell us about that, Daniel? A federal judge has declined to issue an injunction against a new Indiana law that prohibits instruction on human sexuality in grades K through 3. Now, the American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana must decide how it's going to proceed with the case. Judge James P. Hanlon of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Indiana issued the order July 28th, denying the motion filed by the ACLU of Indiana on behalf of Indianapolis teacher Kayla Smiley. In his ruling, Hanlon said the motion was denied because Smiley had not shown some likelihood of succeeding on the merits of her claims. Smiley alleged the new law, House Enrolled Act 1608, violated her right to free speech and is so vague that she does not know what speech and actions may violate the law. In denying the motion for an injunction, Hanlon wrote that Smiley had not shown a likelihood of success on her First Amendment and due process claims. Stevie Pachter, an ACLU of Indiana staff attorney, said on August 1st that the organization was disappointed in Hanlon's ruling. ACLU could either appeal the order or move forward with discovery in the case. A spokesperson from Attorney General Todd Rakita's office said the federal ruling helps ensure that parents are kept in charge and informed of their child's education. Quote, we're hopeful this brings comfort and clarity to parents across the state as their kids return to school to learn about science, reading, and math in their classrooms, unquote. Thanks, Daniel. Staying in education, Alexa, there's a new lawsuit involving a former Butler University athletic trainer. What's going on there? Three soccer players sued Butler University and its agents alleging sexual abuse in the hands of a former athletic trainer. 
the three lawsuits were filed in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Indiana, the players claim they were sexually assaulted by Michael Howell, an athletic trainer for the university, from 2012 until his termination in 2022. The complaints also allege negligence by Ralph Reese, the university's senior associate athletic director and Howell's supervisor. The players, known as Jane Doe's 1, 2, and 3, each allege the sexual abuse mentioned in the complaint happened multiple times, either on campus or on away games and hotel rooms. The complaints are also seeking compensation for the plaintiff's injuries, as well as damages for past, present, and future physical and psychological pain, suffering, and impairment, medical bills, counseling, and other costs. Thanks, Alexa. Moving out east now, plaintiffs in a lawsuit stemming from the 2021 FedEx shooting in Indianapolis are asking a federal judge to consolidate their case with a similar complaint. In April, victims and family members of victims from the shooting filed their lawsuit against the manufacturer and distributors of the high-capacity magazine used in the shooting. That suit was filed in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of New York. Around the same time, another lawsuit that presents the same factual and legal issues was filed in the Indiana Southern District Court. That case has since been transferred to the New York Western District Court. The plaintiffs moved for consolidation in the New York court last month. The plaintiffs are also requesting leave to file a consolidated amended complaint, in part because they believe that will be necessary to effect service on the German manufacturer of the magazine. Now we'll go back to you, Alexa, for some news out of the Attorney General's office. What's happening there? Indiana Solicitor General Thomas Fisher has served in his role for almost 20 years. He's leaving the office of the Attorney General to take a job in the private sector, Attorney General Todd Rakita announced on August 2nd. Fisher was named the state's first Solicitor General in 2005. Since then, he has argued before the U.S. Supreme Court five times and before the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and the Indiana Supreme Court dozens of times. Some of his work has included writing amicus briefs on issues like climate change, abortion, and the Ten Commandments, and the right to trial by jury. Fisher will begin working at Ed Choice next month. The Indianapolis-based not-for-profit advocates for education strategies that allow parents to enroll their children in schools other than their assigned district public schools. Rakita said in a news release that he is conducting a nationwide search for Fisher's successor. Thanks, Alexa. We've been keeping up with a case out of Muncie involving threats against local judges. What's new there, Daniel? A second Muncie man convicted of threatening local judges has been sentenced to five years in prison. Donald Gwynn was sentenced July 17th in Delaware Circuit Court after he pleaded guilty but mentally ill to five counts of intimidation, a level five felony. Gwynn had been charged with the five felonies in June 2022. Bobby Hatfield, a psychologist for the Delaware County Jail and the county's courts, performed a mental health examination in May 2022 on Gwynn, who was incarcerated at the jail, according to a probable cause affidavit. The psychologist pursued a standard line of questioning regarding the charges Gwen was facing. When asked if he could explain why his crimes were wrong, Gwen told Hatfield, quote, Every day I am like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Every day is something new with murder and torture, according to the PCA. Quote, If they let me out, I'll get my hands on some weapons. I might go after Judge Dowling, unquote. Gwen also said to the psychologist, Gwen continued by saying that if he was released, he would, quote, kill cops, unquote, and that, quote, suicide by cop is how I'll go, unquote, according to the affidavit. 
Gwynn's ensuing felony intimidation charges represented threats made against Dowling, as well as former Delaware Circuit Court Judge Marianne Voorhees and current Circuit Judges Linda Ralu Wolf, John M. Fike, and Thomas A. Cannon Jr. In June 2022, the same month Gwynn was charged, John Armstrong was sentenced to four years in prison for level five felony intimidation. The victim in Armstrong's case was Delaware Circuit Court Juvenile Magistrate Amanda Yonali. And one more thing from you, Daniel, this time for a state trooper who allegedly gave false information at a sentencing hearing. What can you tell us? An Indiana State Police Master Trooper faces perjury and misconduct counts after allegations that he conveyed false information at a March sentencing hearing involving a drunk driving case in Shelby County. Jeremy Basso, an 18-year veteran of the agency, faces one count of perjury and one count of official misconduct, both as level six felonies. The charges are the result of an investigation conducted by the Indiana State Police on allegations that Basso conveyed false information during a March sentencing hearing in the Shelby Circuit Court. The sentencing hearing was held March 16th for a suspect who was previously found guilty of driving while intoxicated and crashing into Basso's parked police car in a construction zone on Interstate 74 near Shelbyville on June 18, 2021, according to ISP. Wayne TV reported at the time of the crash the suspect was Mason Durrett, 21, of Indianapolis. Durrett pleaded guilty at the March hearing to one count of operating a vehicle while intoxicated, causing serious bodily injury, a level 5 felony, according to court records. Ripley County Prosecutor Richard Hurdle was selected as a special prosecutor for the Basso case. Basso entered a not guilty plea. He has been placed on administrative leave by ASP without pay. Thanks, Daniel. To round out this week's headlines, I'm working on a story for our next print issue about the choice between lump sum and structured settlements. A survey from MetLife found 86% of employment plaintiff attorneys believe they should recommend structured settlements to their clients. So what exactly is an attorney's obligation to advise clients on the type of settlement they should take? You can read that story in our August 16th issue. Okay, that'll do it for headlines this week. As always, if you want more legal news, theindianalawyer.com is the place to go. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear this week's extended interview. Taft. Today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, I'm joined over Zoom by Derek Mason and Andrew Collin with the Indiana Public Defender Commission. Derek is the commission's executive director, and Andrew is director of public policy and communications. So thanks to both of you for joining me today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us, Tyler. So to start off, I wanted to get a sense of where you both come from and how you ended up with the Public Defender Commission. And so we'll start with you, Derek, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Uh, I graduated from the Indiana University School of Law in Bloomington, the Mauer School. Eventually, it changed while I was there. I uh, graduated in 2005. Uh, I went and practiced in private practice up in Lake County. Then I was a DCS attorney uh, in the first wave of attorneys where DCS started being state employees instead of contractors. 
uh, in Monroe County. And then I was a public defender there for seven years and then uh, was hired by the Supreme Court when the Public Defender Commission was under the Supreme Court in 2014. And I've been with the commission ever since. And Andrew, before I throw it to you, I just want to say if I was ever an IBJ 40 under 40 awardee, as I found out you were, I would bring it up at every opportunity. So with that in mind, uh, what's your background? How'd you end up at the commission? You know, that's so funny that you mentioned that IBJ 40 under 40. I haven't thought about it in a while uh, because that was a long time ago, Tyler. <laughs> 20, I think 2015, if I remember right. Yeah. So um, I was a junior in college at the University of Evansville, and I signed up for what I thought was a eight-week internship with the Indiana House of Representatives. Well, when I got to Indianapolis as a small-town boy living in Evansville, still a year ago, uh, I realized that our old family friend, well, I knew it, but I it, it became quite obvious that our old family friend from Knox County, John Gregg, who was Speaker of the House, was um, going to encourage me to stay. And so next thing you know, within about two weeks of my internship, I was given a full-time job, which I was not expecting. I was planning to go back to Evansville and finish my degree. So I ended up finishing it here at night at IUPY, working full-time for the General Assembly and Speaker Gregg's office. And one day I was standing there serving a session reading clerk and Speaker Gregg looked over the podium and said, Andy, he called me Andy, although I prefer to go by Andrew. He said, Andy, you should go to law school. And I thought, well, I'd never really thought about that. Next thing you know, I'm in law school. And um, I, I, I went at night. Uh, during the course of that, my career kind of progressed. I worked for the Department of Natural Resources as one of their lobbyists for a while. Then I took a turn and went and worked for Senator Bai. Uh, he was still in the U.S. Senate at the time. I was there for about six or seven years in the state, uh, part of the state regional staff. After that, I spent a year on the Hillary Clinton campaign when she was running in the um, 07 primary against President Obama. Newsflash, we lost. So I came back to Indiana look, looking for a job. And that's when Larry Landis, the longtime executive director of the Indiana Public Defender Council and a former member of the Indiana Public Defender Commission, um, hired me to do criminal justice work. I worked with him for about four or five years. That was when we were doing the big criminal code rewrite. So I was part of a staff committee that worked on that. Then I went to United Way for about six or seven years. That's when I got the 40 under 40. I suggest it's probably because they were one of the IBJ sponsors of the 40 under 40. But anyway, uh, after the United Way experience ended, I uh, wanted to get back in uh, criminal justice work. I've always loved it. And Derek was kind enough to hire me here. I've been here about five years now. We don't need to speculate anything other than that award was on merit alone. <laughs> Until somebody tells us different, that's what we're going with. I, I, thank you. Thank you. I think we'll spend the bulk of our time today talking about the commission's recent newsletter article about the state's lawyer shortage. But before we get to that, Derek, I, I was wondering, can you just give me a broad version of, of what the Public Defender Commission does? Yeah. So the Public Defender Commission started actually in 1989. It was created statutorily and it was in response to uh, some appalling uh, costs and challenges that were facing counties and providing uh, adequate death penalty public defense representation. And so we started with a 50%, some guidelines for reimbursement on death penalty cases, and we reimburse for death penalty cases now at the rate of 50% of uh, counties 
sentences associated with penalty. We started saying, hey, our non-death penalty, our regular public defenders throughout the state are woefully paid and overworked. And the state responded to that by authorizing the commission to start reimbursement at the rate of 25% of all of the county's non-capital you know, non-death penalty, public defense expenses. Uh, that only got about 20 to 25% of counties to be interested in participation at the rate of 25% reimbursement. And so the commission then began authorization in 1997, I would say, if I remember correctly, it was around 1997, 1998, that the commission was allowed to reimburse 40% of a county's public defense ex expenses, but excluded misdemeanors from that. So we reimbursed uh, counties' public defense expenses by 40%, but we reimburse nothing for uh, misdemeanor expenses uh, by statute. And in exchange for a county receiving that reimbursement, they have to follow our standards and guidelines that we set, uh, which there are a variety of, but I kind of like to describe our standards as a stool with three legs, you know, primarily compensation, education and experience, and uh, caseloads being the three legs of that stool where all of our standards uh, come together to formulate that whole thing that, that public defense and reimbursement stand on. And then we are statutorily obligated to provide uh, recommendations to the Indiana General Assembly on public defense and the Supreme Court on Criminal Rule 24, which is the uh, criminal rule that governs a death penalty case uh, representation. And Andrew, uh, sort of the same question for you, but uh, I guess more uh, in the present or forward looking from the policy perspective, anything you all are prioritizing right now? Yes, thank you for asking that question. As Derek mentioned, when the commission was originally established, it reimbursed counties for all, basically a percentage of all of their public defense expenses. However, during an economic downturn, about 10 to 15 years ago, the General Assembly removed that authority to reimburse counties for expenses associated with misdemeanor filings. And this has been a significant and I think costly to the quality of criminal justice uh, decision that was only intended to be temporary. And we have been seeking that authority to be returned since I've been here the last five years, and I, I'm embarrassed to say that we have not been successful at that. The House of Representatives has passed it out of uh, uh, State Representative Criminal Co-Chair Wendy McNamara's committee twice. This year, the governor actually proposed it in his version of the state budget. It has passed out of the Senate Corrections Committee uh, once, but we have been wholly unsuccessful in convincing the appropriators that this is a good use of money, even though we have lots of data to show that a higher quality, better trade public defender who is not overworked or underpaid will provide the type of representation that ultimately saves the state money by having more appropriate sentences and in the case of Department of Child Services, better placements for those kids. And so we continue to drum, uh, beat that drum, and we will continue to do so until we can get the appropriators in the House and the Senate to agree with us. So getting to this newsletter article, uh, not surprisingly, and I don't think I, I say that for myself, and I think I'm speaking for most people, it seems like low pay is a really big factor when it comes to the shortage of public defenders. 
And, and that's something the article discusses. But Derek, I was wondering, would you say that's the biggest factor or are there other things that might top that list? That's a great question. And obviously, in our article, we explore what is contributing to uh, the attorney shortage and the public defender shortage in Indiana. There's various things that are feeding that fire. We have been below the per capita average of the rate of attorneys in Indiana for quite some time. And so there's really two questions. You asked about a public defender shortage. And that is obviously, as the Public Defender Commission, uh, one of our priorities. But at the same time, what we're acknowledging in that article is an attorney shortage, right? So we have been looking since 2020 at the, we were able to get the data on the per capita rate of attorneys by county in Indiana, and then in the national average. And we could see how poorly we were positioned. Uh, Andrew likes to mention, you can look at the uh, the population of our state house and how it used to be, you know, you couldn't not walk into a lawyer and now you can, it's hard to find one in, in our state house now. Uh, so we have had a decrease in the number of attorneys even since 2020 compared to the national average as of 2023. So there's that uh, right off the bat. And then just in economics generally, when your supply goes down and demand stays the same or perhaps increases. There was a recent article out of Steuben County talking about legalized marijuana uh, in Michigan, but uh, in Indiana is still being illegal, making them have to have more attorneys. Uh, so, you know, there's various reasons why you might need more attorneys to maintain case full compliance. That's just one article that came out today uh, talking about that. And so, if your demand is going to stay the same or perhaps increase over time, then what do you have with supply down? You have less people participating and less the price that, you know, the people are going to be paid. Their compensation goes up to deal with that low supply. And so the reality is that uh, counties have fallen way behind on prosecutor and public defender salaries. We require pay parity. With prosecutor salaries is one of our standards. I said compensation was one of our standards earlier, one of the legs we kind of stand on on that stool, right? And so we require not just state-dictated salaries and contract amounts. We say this is what you are paying comparably experienced, comparably working attorneys in these counties, and you need to match that for the public defense, essentially. Uh, there's obviously variations that we have, but that's essentially what we do as one of our standards. And unfortunately, they're finding out with the DCS uh, increase in compensation and that has happened when the state redid their salaries this last year. And then some counties starting to pick up that slack and recognizing they need to pay their prosecutors and public defenders more. Uh, they have found that the counties that have not picked up that slack are not getting any applicants to replace open positions or to hire for new positions. Uh, and that is a major problem. And then we have had counties that have said when we have increased that salary, that that resolved that issue. So the reality for me is that you need to pay more to be able to draw attorneys to a field that may is, is historically not as competitive as the private practice compensation wise. But when you're way behind the bar and you have a low level of available attorneys anyway, you must pay them more. And that's really kind of where we're at. So as far as it being a driving factor, uh, I think it's huge. And then the other one, obviously, we talk about in the article as a huge one as well, is the fact that Valparaiso School of Law 
provided almost one in five attorneys practicing in the state of Indiana, almost, and they are no longer in existence. And that is, in and of itself is probably another reason why that number continues to decline of our per capita rate of attorneys. There's just less law schools. And then we have three law schools left. Two of those three are nationally renowned, one extremely so. And the rate of uh, them being placed to work in Indiana, you can see in that article, uh, reflects that. Notre Dame barely places anybody here at all. Less than 10% of their graduates uh, stay in Indiana. And then you have the Bloomington School of Law, the Maurer School, that places uh, significantly more, but about half the rate of what Indianapolis does. So when you have three schools attracting people and sending those students back out to other states, not a lot left to stay in Indiana. And Andrew, uh, sticking with the the topic of pay and sort of giving it a national lens, there's this never-ending, or it seems never-ending, debate about student loans. And I know this factors into the equation for law students as they're getting out into the workforce uh, and they have to weigh potential job and salary versus what they have to pay back for student loans. That's got to come into the equation, right? Well, not only does it come into the equation, it is a driving factor of why recent graduates are not able to choose public interest law. Um, you know, uh, in our article, we mentioned that in 2020, over half of all law school graduates actually graduated with a debt of over $150,000. That number has just been dramatically increasing over the last 10, 15, 20 years. When I graduated from IU uh, McKinney in 2006, I, I didn't spend $150,000 for four years of school. That would have been nuts. I wouldn't have even considered that. And I certainly didn't have to borrow that much. So when I was at a recent IU McKinney class as a guest speaker for um, uh, attorney LSA, I just said out of curiosity, um, how many of you are going to be, if, you're, if you feel comfortable answering, how many of you are going to come out of here with at least a six-figure in debt? Every hand in the room went up. I said, how many of you are getting offers from law, from a law firms? Every hand went up. That was astounding to me. And Derek can probably agree with me in that when back in the day, it was only the top 10, 15% of your graduating class that sort of got the big offers from the law firms. The lawyer shortage, combined with the fact that um, if you're looking at making $150,000 payment right away, uh, you cannot take a job in state government for $60,000 a year and live comfortably. And at the same time, uh, you're getting an offer from a big firm that I'm sure minimum six figures at most of those firms, I um, mean, that goes up quickly. You really don't have a choice. You have to take that job, even if your heart would have been in public interest law. And that is the dilemma we have right now. So, Derek, with the pay situation being what it is, I mean, what's your pitch to someone? And let's just use a recent law school grad as an example. But but to someone who's you know considering public interest law, how are you getting them into the field while conceding the fact that, no, you're not going to make the same amount of money with private practice? I, the reality, I think, is the people that are interested in public interest law will always be interested. The question is whether or not you can get them to follow through on that interest, right? Uh, I do think that there has been a significant drive in people that are less interested in hanging a single in their home county 
and they would rather go to a firm that is paying us benefits or a public defender office that is paying benefits uh, or a prosecutor office that is paying benefits, right? So I think one of the things that uh, we have been encouraging counties to do is to really consider creation of public defender offices instead of contractors hiring your local public defenders, right, to offer those benefits and to offer a full-time position to people that's not as risky as going out to a home county, buying an office or renting an office and creating uh, all of these, you know, having to create clients, hire staff, you know, paying for your own case management system. So to the extent that we do have offices throughout the state, it's not a mandatory system to participate in the commission. That is a great selling pitch to uh, students is that you can go get that training on how to be a good lawyer through an office that has a structure and a training system and provide you the benefits and a salary in the meantime. And I think that that is our number one recruitment tool right now. But ultimately, it is a real challenge to get people to go to those offices if they're not, again, compensating enough to pull those public interest people over. The other thing that's happening is in some of these counties, people are not applying for a job in X county because Y county next door pays 50% more, right? And so really, that is they're following the money. And and, and that's so it's, it's kind of a roundabout answer to your question. We can we don't do the direct hiring here. We encourage counties. We do a job listing service on our site to help connect people to where open positions are uh, throughout the state. And uh, we encourage people to go check that out or to send us, you know, their own listings uh, for vacancies in public defense. But uh, ultimately, it's the counties that have to recruit and retain these people. And they won't be able to do that unless compensation increases uh, accordingly. And uh, in many cases, unless they start offering benefits to these, uh, especially new grads, that that's what they're looking for. So when we're talking about things like pay, I know it's easy to get bogged down into the numbers, but Derek, I was wondering uh, if there are examples out there that you can think of to show just sort of the on the ground impact of uh, the shortage of lawyers in general and, and public interest lawyers specifically. Yeah, there was a recently in, uh, you know, the Vanderburg County came to the commission and there's an article or two coming out of Vanderburg County recently about it. Um, but the chief public defender spoke at the com- last commission meeting in June and said, ultimately, that they have been accepting cases with no one to assign them to because of vacancies and high caseloads for the remaining attorneys, and that people are sitting ultimately in jail without a lawyer, uh, even though they've been appointed one. And then the office wasn't appointing. And so the commission had to advise them, you know, there's a standard that says if you can't accept cases, you must reject them and let everyone know, uh, let the courts know, the judges know that you cannot take any more appointments in your office. And that's the process that they are working through right now because they have had zero applicants for a salary position that started in the high 50s. No one would apply. And it was salaried with benefits, but no one would apply for that position. I have been hearing from other counties along the Ohio River of similar challenges, trying to fill vacant positions. Delaware County recently uh, was unable to fill a contract position uh, and they were able to raise the amount that they based those contracts on to be a part-time contractor doing public defense work. They were able to raise that contract, I believe to $50,000 for a part-time or half-time position. And that was able to fill that position. So essentially they're basing that contract amount on a $100,000 
full-time person, you know, to get them to half time at that level. So there's just a lot that counties are reporting to us as future struggles that they anticipate and various things that are they are trying to do to raise that compensation. And when they do, it does actually seem to be resolving the issue, at least temporarily. It's not going to resolve the shortage of attorneys in Indiana. That requires a much larger picture that we can talk about in a little bit. But it does resolve some of the immediate shortage of public defenders and and, and counties, also prosecutors, uh, being able to work in those counties. Now, this article does not end, thankfully, by saying, well, good luck out there, everyone. Things are terrible, but it, it does have some solutions. And Andrew, I was wondering if you could walk us through what some of those solutions look like. Sure. Right. Thanks, Tyler, for bringing that up. And again, you know, just for your listeners, you know, this full article is on the front page of our website, which is a simple website, slash public defender. So we encourage anyone listening to, to read for yourself, but I'll, I'll highlight just a few uh, um, of the solutions that we have discussed. First of all, the federal government for many, many years, including back when I worked for it um, in the 2000s, has a student loan reimbursement program. Uh, In other words, when I worked for the U.S. Senate, uh, every year, Senator Bayh would say, all right, everyone, who wants, who needs help with their student loans? And then he would say, this is how much I can afford to give each of you, but you have to sign an agreement that you'll work for me for a year. And if you leave before that time, I can ask for the money back. And that was a great, great plan. And honestly, most of us young kids who had some student loans to pay off and were working at a government salary might not have been able to do it. I don't think I would have stayed as long as I did had I not had that option. The state has nothing like that. It never has. And that has been something that's been discussed and debated for years. I really do think looking for a public service loan, student loan payment program or forgiveness program uh, is something the state could do. And to do pretty quickly here to encourage people to come and work as public interest lawyers. There's also a discussion in our article about creating some student loan or some public service fellowships. In other words, hey, uh, you know, you agree to come work for our agency uh, for a while and you'll do an internship here while you're finishing up law school. And then you uh, we will reimburse a portion of your law school class. That's a really great option. We think that um there are some things that can be done uh, administratively that are, there's a link to another article in our article that uh, discusses some of those. There's things that could be done now with bar admissions. There's changes to whether or not um, we have standards that will prohibit certain graduates of law school from even coming to Indiana to take the bar. And finally, we know that our bar exam is... <laughs> or a two-day long stressful ordeal in which you know you're expected to know a little bit about everything and ultimately the day after the bar exam you forget three-fourths of it so maybe there's a better way of admitting lawyers to uh the practice of law in indiana there are more options there we talk a lot about how we think the justice reinvestment advisory commission which is a group of leaders from all three branches of Indiana state government in the areas of criminal justice um, come together under the leadership of uh, the chair of that, who is uh, Justice Goff. And we think that would be a great group to maybe come up with some solutions. And we're excited to be part of that. We also know that there's things we could do directly here at the commission. 
Give us the authority to reimburse for misdemeanors. We'll get more money out to the counties. They'll be able to pay more. It'll be a lot more functional of a system. There are some low-hanging fruits and there's some long-term issues, but um, we, uh, I, I agree with you, Tyler. This is a problem that we can take significant steps to solve. And I think Indiana's policymakers should come together to do that. And we here at the commission stand ready, willing, and able to help in any way and be part of that solution. Well, speaking of being a part of the solution, I'll, I'll go to you, Derek, uh, because I think one thing people might be wondering is just what is the commission's role in helping address, I'll, I'll, and I'll say it again, the lawyer shortage in general and public interest lawyers uh, specifically? Our role, obviously, so there's there's three public defense ed- entities in the state of Indiana, right? We have the state public defender that represents people in post-conviction relief proceedings. We have the public defender council that represents public defenders directly uh, in uh, their interests in at the state house, uh, as well as provides training uh, and education to public defenders and advocates on policy that relates to crimes and offenses and sentences and things like that. We don't get involved in those things uh, generally. We are sitting on JRAC. We do have a seat there. Uh, so we do, you know, we are at the table when criminal justice things arise. But at the same time, our focus is anything that affects our standards uh, and affects the availability of lawyers, uh, that affects the caseloads of lawyers, that affects the compensation, education, and experience requirements for lawyers and a variety of other things that we have standards on, right? And so if we're going to set standards that dictate essentially how many lawyers you would need to have in a county, it behooves us to provide as much support as we can to those counties that have chosen to voluntarily participate in this reimbursement progress, uh, it behooves us to help them find those lawyers. And so it's only been fairly recently that we launched, like I said, the website uh, that that helps with the job listing service. And then obviously this article that we are trying to pull salary information. We do talk in the article about prosecutor salaries, public defender salaries, median and averages, as well as private attorneys. That is information that county councils need to know, right? So we provide that information to everyone at the county level to be able to use that to determine how much should we be paying our attorneys? How much are other counties paying? And so we do, uh, through one of the authors of this, Dr. Torin Liddell, who works in our office, he, he does a lot of work and we're able to pull a lot of data together. So people reach out to us. Counties will say, tell me other similarly positioned counties with a similar level of cases being filed, a level of appointment of public defenders, le- number of attorneys, uh, whatever. And tell us how what counties those are and how much they're paying. What is their system? Are they facing trouble? And we try to make those connections across counties because we have 92 systems of the way counties operate in the state of Indiana. You know, we give counties the local control and that results in, in, in 92 different systems. And then, and not only that, that's just county level. You know, you have within counties, various courts and those courts hire differently sometimes too. So it becomes uh, uh, quite a quagmire. Uh, and we're here to try to help resolve that as much as possible. And just to piggyback on that, there was, you know, great reporting from the Indiana lawyer by Dan Carson about um, the fact that this is not just a public defense problem. He uh, has articles that are linked in our article uh, where he hears from prosecutors and court staff as well. This is a overall public interest lawyer problem and quite frankly, just a lawyer shortage problem in general. 
Yeah, we've covered the the shortage pretty extensively just in my brief time since I've been here since February. And based on our conversation here, I'm going to guess we're going to continue to to look at the lawyer shortage. I don't think it's going away tomorrow. Uh, probably not even next week, if I'm being honest. But <laughs> Andrew, be, before we go, uh, for anyone interested in getting involved with the commission's work or learning more, where can they do that? Yeah, we have, a, I think, a pretty good website. Again, it's in.gov slash public defender. I would start there. Definitely the uh, articles on the front page of that. We also have lots of tabs on that website, including the job board uh, that Derek mentioned earlier. If you're interested in seeing what positions are open around the state, you can follow us on Twitter or X, I guess it's called now. As long as that stays around, it's all very confusing. But we do currently have an X account. I need to say that correctly. Uh, so you can look us up there. Um, you know, we're pretty communicative here. We have a uh, an inbox that is checked almost hourly by our whole team, information at pdcom.in.gov, information at pdcom.in.gov. So email us with questions or comments. We would love to hear from you. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's extended interview. Thank you again to Derek and Andrew for joining me. Thank you, Tyler. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's uh, it's an important topic. I'm glad you're covering it. As always, to hear our previous interviews, visit theindianalawyer.com or find us on your favorite podcast app. We'll talk to you next time.